Two weeks ago, I concluded my message with the charge that we have failed to place the emphasis upon the social aspect of our divine mandate as a church. I want to put that charge into context again, in the context of our mission and our mandate as a local church. Now, you've seen this diagram, but I want you to see it again, because this, in my, in my mind, is the reason why we exist as a church, and not only Calvary Bible Church, but all local churches. This here. Calvary Bible's church's purpose and mission, the main is to glorify the triune God. We do that by completing the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. We do that by evangelizing the lost and discipling believers toward Christ-likeness. We do that by providing members with opportunities. We cannot force anyone to do anything, especially when it comes to the Lord's work or ministry. But we provide opportunities for the members for a personal encounter with the triune God through worship, the word of God through instruction, the people of God through fellowship, the, word, the world God loves through evangelism. In this setup here, we have the uh, major purpose of the church, the ultimate purpose of the church, the general purpose of the church, the immediate purpose of the church. We have here, when we put it all together, the objective as well as the methods for accomplishing this goal. This is why we exist. Now, we have derived from this overall purpose from the scriptures four overall objectives. The first objective is to personally and corporately encounter the triune God through meaningful worship experiences in an atmosphere of acceptance, belonging, and spiritual freedom. We have spent a lot of time on this particular one in worship and trying to demonstrate that our major occupation should be the worship of God. And we put a lot of emphasis on this, trying to give you the understanding that you should be free to worship God the way God impresses upon your heart. If you want to raise your hand, raise your hand. If you want to clap, clap. If you want to, whatever it is, once it's in keeping with God's will and it's decently done and in order, it's for the honor and praise of God. We spend time on that one. The second objective is to personally and corporately encounter the word of God through effective expository teaching by spiritually qualified individuals who stand for the historic fundamental truth of the Bible. I believe that we've also done this quite well. We've focused a lot on the need for us to do expository preaching and not just having people who would come up and talk and say what they want and not be prepared with it. Expository preaching, instruction. Objective number three is to personally and corporately encounter the people of God through meaningful fellowship experiences through which spiritual gifts might be mutually shared and love for one another demonstrated in a practical manner. I mean, we've done quite well on this. There's still room for improvement, of course. But I believe through our mini churches especially, this has been accomplished. It's been accomplished also through our discovery classes. And then we try occasionally through the years to have social activities where people could meet with one another and share with one another. So I think we've done pretty well with that one as well. Objective number four is to personally and corporately encounter unbelievers through meaningful evangelistic missions opportunities and passionate 
social outreach. I want you to take a note of that last phrase. Passionate social outreach. I believe it's in this area that we have fallen short. And it is in this area that God has spoken to me as a pastor here in a very meaningful way during the past months. And this is something that I intend to focus upon, Lord willing, in the year 2010. Now, this mandate, this passionate social outreach, is drawn specifically and directly from Jesus' own mission and mandate. This is what he said, Luke chapter 4. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Notice that, where he had been brought up. His hometown, his community. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Notice these words very carefully now. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I want you to notice here, Jesus says that he came, his mandate was to deal specifically and directly with the spiritual and social problems that afflicted mankind throughout history, that afflicts us today. Notice the text, poverty, to preach the gospel to the poor. Now this is not only material poverty, this is spiritual poverty as well. But the material poverty is used as the basis of the scribe, spiritual poverty. To preach the gospel to the poor. Sorrow. To heal the brokenhearted. Bondage. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Suffering. And recovery of sight to the blind. Oppression. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Notice. These are the afflictions that have afflicted mankind throughout history. And it's prevalent today. Poverty, sorrow, bondage, suffering, oppression. It's not only the proclamation of the gospel. That is vital, that is important, but they go hand in hand. And Jesus' mission, his mandate here, he says, was to deal with these afflictions. Listen to his mandate to the church as he prepared to leave. He prepares to go back to be with his father and to share the glory that he once had. But before he left, he gave a mandate to those who he called his own and who called him their Lord. John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. In other words, he's passing the baton on to us. What is he passing on? His mandate. His commission, the same mandate, the same commission that the Father had given him to complete on earth. Now he's living. He's done or he will complete the part that only he could do by dying for the sins of mankind. But there's a lot still left undone. And he gives the mandate to us, including this mandate here in Luke chapter 4. Jesus' mission Becomes 
our mission. And we must do it the way he did it. He began with his own people in his own community. That was a special concern for him. He was rejected, of course, but he did it nonetheless. And so must we. We must not allow the fear of being rejected or intimidated in any way to keep us from fulfilling the mandate that Jesus Christ has left to us. He is our model, Jesus Christ. And he has left it for us to do. And as I say, I believe we have failed here as a church. There are many individuals who are doing it. But as a church, I believe we failed here. And we need to correct that as much as possible. Notice our objective again. To personally and corporately encounter unbelievers through meaningful evangelistic missions or opportunities and passionate social outreach. I say again. We have not been faithful to our Savior's command and example in caring for the poor and needy in our own community. We have people who will do anything to go away for a week or 10 days to Haiti, who would not go next door to reach people who are just in dire need. We have to change that. We have neglected our Jerusalem, our hometown, as it were. And so I felt then constrained by God to challenge you with what I call Operation Micah. And this is drawn from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And also it reflects a worldwide movement on this Micah. And we'll be talking about that uh, before, because I'm hoping to have someone who would come to represent us during our missions conference if it could be approved. But this is what it says in Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? I want you to understand what he's saying. He's saying here, God has told us what he requires us to do. What is it? Do justice. Love kindness and to walk humbly before our God. Now, it's important to see this verse in context. This is where exposition comes in. This verse is a part of God's lawsuit against his people. Because among other sins, they have failed to remember the poor and the needy in their midst. And so God had to take them to court. This is our focus today, this message. As we continue to present the biblical imperative for what I call Operation Micah. But let me give you a background for this. One of the things that we sometimes overlook is God's concern for the poor throughout the Bible. You want to do a study? Just look at poor poverty, oppressed, and see what God has to say. I just want to bring a couple of these verses to my, your attention before we look into the text. Proverbs 14, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. 
Those are quite challenging words for this time of the year. Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 19. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Proverbs 21.13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Proverbs 22.2. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Did you get that? They're no different from you. They're not less in God's sight than you are or I am because we have more. We have a common maker, and that's God. Now here is perhaps one of the most challenging and condemning passages I know it was for me. Because you see, sometimes when we think of the homosexual and so on and Sodom and Gomorrah, we say that's the reason why God condemned them, because of their immorality. Well, listen to this passage. This is Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Now notice this. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Do you see what God is saying here? One of the reasons for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is for the rich people, the righteous, not caring for the poor and needy, not just for immorality. In other words, God looked at this sin of not caring for the poor the same way he looked at homosexuality. Listen to Zechariah chapter 7. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, true justice, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. That's God speaking to us. Now let me give you one of the greatest examples of all when it comes to caring for the poor. There was no one in this universe poorer than you or I, spiritually speaking. We were destitute, spiritually speaking. That's why the Beatitudes begin, blessed are what? The poor in spirit, bankrupt spiritually. That's you and me before we came to Christ. But now listen to this passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, my sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might be made rich. Jesus Christ is our example. And he's given us the mandate to be like him, to care for the needy. We are no more Christ-like than when we care for the poor the way Jesus did. Because Israel refused to care for the poor and, show our, and, and, and to show compassion to the needy, God actually brought a lawsuit against them for her sin and her neglect. And the passage we read concerning the destruction, that's one of the reasons why the destruction of Jerusalem came along as well. It's all tied in. But then Israel were complaining that in spite of their regular worship rituals, 
They would bring their burnt offerings. They would come singing. They would bring their tithes. They would bring their free offerings. They would come, we say, every, every Sunday to church. But God was not listening to the prayer. God was not blessing them. And so the people were complaining. God was not paying them back for their good works. Now think about it yourself. In fact, Brother Brian sort of reminded us a little bit, you know, if you give $50 and he says, God bless you, don't mean he doesn't give it to you $50 back. But a lot of people have that idea when it comes to God. If I don't please God here, God ain't going to do this, God ain't going to do that. And we only do it to get something back. That's not what he's looking for. And that's what Israel was doing. So God did not hear their prayer or bless their undertakings. They felt that they were being cheated by God for doing good things for him. Lord, I'm doing these good things for you. I'm coming out Sunday mornings. Isn't that enough? I don't come out Sunday night. I might go to Sunday school class one and then. Or I might come to Sunday school and come out. But Lord, I'm doing something. I, I go to Discovery. I, I, you must be going to bless me. Here's how God responds. This is an indictment in Micah 6, verses 1 through 5. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. God calls on the mountains and the hills, representing the peoples of all generations, to be his witnesses against his, this, his religious but uncaring and unjust people. They were religious, but they had no compassion for the people he had compassion for. He lodges then a legal accusation, a, lit a litigation against his own people, his covenant people. And then he challenges them to stand before the witnesses and to answer their case. This is serious business to God. And so he takes on a legal format. He could not allow his people to go on thinking that they were okay because they were performing religious duties but were failing to show compassion and care for the poor and needy. He just couldn't allow them to go on and thinking that's all that he demanded of them. Notice he calls them my people, verse 3. My people. My people. Members of the body of Christ. My people. What have I done to you? And how... Have I wearied you? You see, that's what they were accusing. You read the rest of the passage. They, were, they said, Lord, you're making us weary. We're going through all of these things. And you ain't giving us nothing. We're tired doing this. Answer me, how have I wearied you? That's God's challenge. He's challenging them to show how he has been. He has being unfair to them by treating them the way he did. Why are you treating me this way, Father? 
God, why are you treating me this way? He says, I'm going to show you. He then begins to list some of the things he did for them to show his loyal love for them throughout the, throughout the years and how, in fact, he did not get weary in helping them. Verse 4. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He said, now listen, look at what I did. I delivered you from Egypt, from slavery. And I gave you leaders that could be counted on. And they led you to the wilderness. They led you to the promised land. I wasn't weary in doing it. I didn't stop. I kept on doing it. Verse 5. My people remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered him and from Shittim to to Gilgal so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. In other words, you say, now look what I did with Balaam. Balaam was hired by Balak to curse you and I made him bless you instead. Was I weary in doing that? Then he mentioned uh, from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim was the last place they encamped east of the river before going to the promised land. Gilgal was the first place they encamped when they got across. In other words, he's saying, listen, I brought you all the way through the desert. And I took you right into the promised land. Right into the promised land. How have I wearied you? They were forgetting all the things that he did. We're like that sometimes. Now comes the confession. And the prophet Isaiah takes the place with the people in the sense. Isaiah, not Isaiah, Amos puts himself here as the faithful prophet. Faithful leader. He says, with what shall I come to the Lord? And bow myself before the God and I. Said, okay God, you've been rejecting all of these things we're doing. You don't bless us, you don't answer our prayer. What do you want us to do then? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With yearning yearning cars? What is it exactly the prophet is asking God? That you're looking for from us. We bring our offerings. I give my tenth. Even now and then I give a little extra. I come out to the church services. I'm a part of the praise team. I sing in the congregation. I do all of those things. And yet you're still not blessing us. What are we lacking? Verse 7. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? In 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is some anguished words here. Micah is trying to make, not Micah, a, yeah, Micah is trying to make a point. He's using gross exaggeration, hyperbole, to show that God was not in any way appeased, satisfied, or placated with outward actions or rituals only. Now I underline only. No matter how costly or how consistently we might do them, he says, I don't care how many times you bring me offerings, 
I don't care how costly they are. That's not all that I'm looking for. Nothing they could do of a religious nature could atone for their sin. Their sin of neglecting the poor and the needy. They could not pay God for his blessings or favor. He wanted their heart. He wanted them to change their attitudes and to do what they were not doing. You see, they were focusing on what they were doing. But they left out what they were not doing. And it was, it was what they were not doing that was closest to the heart of God. Caring for the poor, caring for the needy. That's one reason why the Messiah came. To do what his people failed to do. Micah then clearly and pointedly spells out what God required of them. And what he requires of us today. Look at verse 8. He has told you. In other words, if you'd go back in the life of the prophets, you'd see God has told you what I require. This isn't new news. This isn't something just happening. He has told you, O man, what is good. And isn't it true that God has given us his revelation? He tells us exactly how we are to represent him on earth. But yet, we seem not to know. Because we don't do it. Especially in the area of caring for the poor and needy. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does he demand of you? There it is, to do justice. And in the context, it has to do with not oppressing the poor. To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. That's what God demands of his people. And that's what Israel was not doing. God did not want them to be related to him in only a ritualistic way. God wanted them to be related inwardly. To obey him because they wanted to. They desired to do so. Not because it was a burden on them. Or because he was going to give them something back for doing it. That would be good before the Lord. And would show itself in a specific way of life. That's what he's saying. If you just focus on the reason why you're doing what you're doing. Doing justice is a way of loving mercy, which in turn is a manifestation of walking humbly before God. That's a quote by James Luther, his commentary. God had made his requirements known to his people long before Micah's time. Listen to just one passage where God told his people what he wanted them to do, and they refused to do it. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there is a poor man among you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Rather, be open-handed. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. See the heart? There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. God has told him this long ago. I want you to see the reference to the poor you will always have with you. You see that? 
Usually, we interpret this to mean, well, you know, don't get overly concerned to people. You can't do enough. Why? They can be with you all the time, no matter what you do. They can be with you. That's how we regard that. That's not what this context is saying. The idea is this. Look at it, really. Because you will always have the poor with you, always be open-handed and not tight-fisted toward them. That's what the text is saying. Not just let it go by. They always hear, always hear. Jesus himself used this text in a different way to talk about opportunities. When Mary came and anointed him with that costly perfume, the disciples started to argue about how it could be given to the poor. You remember that? Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but not me. What he was doing there was not saying, hey, don't worry about the poor. You always find an opportunity. What he was focusing rather was the fact that what you're going to do with me, you only have one chance to do that. One chance. And so this text is telling us, because the poor is always, are always with us, then we should always be freely giving. That's the context. Not tight-fisted. So God's point then in Deuteronomy 15 is that believers are always to be willing to help the poor. There are lots and lots of opportunities to do it. So we have no excuse for not helping the poor. Why? Because they're all around us all the time. So don't say, well, I had no opportunity. Don't allow these opportunities to pass you by, is what the prophet is saying. This is what Operation Micah is all about. Buying up the opportunities in our own community to care for the poor and needy the way Jesus did and the way he commanded us to do. We want to do good to the poor while we have the opportunity to do so. Micah 6.8 is our watchword for this outreach then. But we must always remember that when we do this, we're not replacing it with the gospel. In fact, Joseph Parker made this comment. He says, Micah 6.8 is not the gospel. We are not saved by obeying these words. But we cannot obey them unless we are saved. I would even go further and say that it shows that we are saved. Our religious words and deeds mean nothing to God if we lack character wrought by the Holy Spirit as we yield to him. All controversy, all resentful intellectualism, all selfish calculation, all vicious political Christianity must fall before that sublime revelation. What is that sublime revelation? That first of all, our hearts have to be right with God. Because even if we go through all the motions and our heart is not right, it's of no benefit to God or to us. But we want to make a demonstration here that we want to help people not just to preach to them. That's why this first, what is, what is Thaddeus call it? Re reconnaissance? Reconnaissance. This reconnaissance. This first thrust into the area is simply to take 
the gifts of food and leave. The only way we talk to them is if they talk to us first. We love Gospels. We love the Gospel of John. We have some other tracts and literature in the left for them. But we don't want to give them the idea, hey, before we give this to you, listen, I got something to tell you. No. We want to show them that as members of the incredible body of Christ, we are being Christ-like. And we're doing it because of our compassion received from Jesus Christ himself. Now we could go on to show what the, what the sentence was to the people, but that doesn't bear upon us today. I just want to close now with some further instruct or information concerning Operation Micah. Um, if we have the map up, well, this is my old one. Alan, you don't got your new one? You did a better map, man. The first stage of Project Micah is designed or planned to be implemented on December the 20th. You'll be asked to fill a handbag with food items. We'll provide the bags. In fact, we want to thank uh, Brother Egan for providing the bags for us. Good bags. Now, they're not for you. Because <laughs> you could use this for grocery shopping. They're really good bags. But they're for the people. All right? And we want you to provide the food items. Now, um, we were th- trying to think about all kinds of ways to do this. But we're trying to make it as simple as possible. But also to give the, uh, to get the, the sense that we are involved, not a group of people. And so rather than say we can have all the food and then put them in the bags and so on, we would like for you to buy the food items yourself and put it into the bag. Now I'm trying, I'm not sure I'm going to get this done yet, but I'm trying to see if I could beg something from a, uh, one of the food stores so we, at least we have one thing that will be alike for all, but I'm not sure that's going to be yet. I'm trying to see if I can find someone who will give us a, really a good price or give it to us free. Uh, a canned ham, you know, a canned ham that we could put in the bag that will be true of all. But we want food items particularly. Uh, that should be looking at. And you will buy the items. You would put them into the bag. Now, if we get these other things, we'll give it to you when you come in. But we want you to do that because we want you to be involved personally. And please don't say, here's $50, go and buy the food. I'm not encouraging that either, unless there's some reason you cannot do it yourself. I don't mean that you have to go on the beach, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. But because you're sick, or whatever it is, that's a different story. We want you to be involved. All right? And as I said, the idea is that we meet here as usual. At 11 o'clock, well, the Sunday school goes on before that, of course. And in fact, our Sunday school uh, exercises go on before that. But before we leave, we have a half hour or so of prayer, focusing on prayer for this time. And then we will go. Next week, we'll give you more details because we have a good group of men who are putting it all together, exactly how it will be done. But you see the area that has been covered over there. Uh, we're not sure we can cover all of them. It depends on how many of you respond. We have a sign-up sheet. And at first, I was not going to have a sign-up. But I think if we don't, it would be a little problematic for us in planning. Because we want to have individuals at each street, so on, making sure that everything is arranged properly. 
making sure that there's protection for the women and all of that. But we'll go into detail more on that next Lord's Day. But if you'd like to be a part of this, we encourage you to sign up so we will know how many uh, bags to, uh, to get and how to set up each area. Now, as I said again, we want to distribute the bags to the homes, not to individuals. So the idea is not to give out the bags as you go down the street. You're going to go to the home, we knock on the door, we give it to the individuals who come out. That's the, and once we do it, we have a little idea, we'll give you a little suggestion, as we just say, uh, when you, you give it, we can identify yourself, the fact that we're from Calvary Bible Church, and we're doing this as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ, something along that line. We'll give you some idea when we go, and just walk away. How they stop you and say, hey, you know, where are you from, and what do you teach, or whatever it is, then if you have an opportunity, that's okay. We will be doing that throughout the year. We'll be having meetings with them here. We have meetings in the, in the area out there as well. At least that's what we're thinking about right now. This is simply the initial thrust into the area, our introduction, as it were. Um, and as I said, we want the children who are able, old enough to go along. I want it to be seen as a family. I really want the community there to see the church. That is why somebody says, why don't we get T-shirts or the same T-shirts and put it on? I don't want that kind of a thing. I want the people to see Christians coming because they have a concern for them. That's the idea right now. And in doing this, I believe that we will begin to meet this objective of reaching out in a passionate way to care for the poor and the needy in our midst and so fulfill one of the objectives for God placing us here. Right? We're here for a reason. And it's time for us to understand that. See, I remember in, in, we're seeing where we're downtown. And these folk, when we had a certain group of people moving into the downtown area, uh, the first thing that came to mind, we need to move out. Because a certain group of people come. I said, move out? God is bringing the mission field to us. We see people have the idea, you know, we just comfortably come to church, dress up nice, go eat, go home, that's it. That's all God requires. Uh-uh. He requires that we do justice. We love compassion. And we walk humbly before our God. I trust that God would use this as a motivation to revolution us, as, us here as believers of Calvary Bible Church in seeing that we have a heart just like that of Jesus Christ. Please bow with me. Next week we'll have time for uh, questions and so on, but we'll stop here for today. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. We're going to have our closing hymn, and as usual this time of being the first Sunday we receive a benevolent offering, we ask you to give freely. There's a lot of people in need right here in our own church. So please respond, keeping with God's will in your life. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask again your forgiveness for the neglect that we have shown towards those in our own neighborhood. And we pray now that with your help, your strength, that you might 
enable us to do justice, to love righteousness, and to walk humbly before our God. And all of God's people said, Amen.